Welcome to The Waitlist. I'm Alex. I'm a student trainee psychotherapist in the UK. According to MIND, there are 1.6 million people on the waiting list for mental health treatment with the NHS. A further 8 million can't get on the list because they're not deemed unwell enough. My aim for The Waitlist podcast is to explore different ways we can support our own mental health. I'll be interviewing people with a range of perspectives on mental well-being, including psychotherapy. If something piques your interest, I'd encourage you to do your own research. I'll be sharing resources in the show notes. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Lewis Wedlock is an activist, academic and social psychologist. His work centres around exploring and challenging structures that limit pathways to expressing ourselves. He's currently one of the UK's youngest lecturers and one of the West of England's most influential people under the age of 30. Some of you listening may know that I volunteer on the leadership committee for TEDx Brighton and I had the huge honour of working with Lewis in April 2022 where he delivered his talk, The Crisis of Masculinity which was a gorgeous piece Lewis wrote about the challenge we have in our society today where, as the ONS outlines, men account for 75% of suicides in the UK with the really sad truth that 4,129 males took their life in 2021. Lewis, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm excited to be here. So I mentioned in your intro that you are a social psychologist. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a little bit about what that really means? Yeah, I can try to. I mean, <laughs> uh, there's it's a it's a it's a broad sort of area, so to speak. Um, it can range from sort of looking at and exploring, you know, the way in which human beings interact, how how human beings sort of communicate, and how human beings make sense of the world um, around them in this sort of um, collective and cultural spaces. I think for me, my work is in and around the sort of cultural and structural um space and looking at how what exists around us in our culture and our society um can influence our psychology how we view ourselves how we view others and how that is communicated and projected you know in in many different spaces and places so that's like a very basic definition of of what a social psychologist does but it is very broad and it can kind of encompass so many different areas of the mm. discipline mm. and how did you get into becoming a social psychologist like what was your journey um so i I studied psychology uh with sociology at at university level um and i found during that process that i was gravitating more towards the social aspect Uh, i would say and i often say i'm a sociologist in a psychologist's sort of body i'm I'm very interested in structure and culture Mm -hmm. i'm very interested in how that manifests and makes itself known within ourselves and our ideas. So I had a mentor um, in my final year of, of undergraduate study, which uh, his name's Guy Saunders. I would say he's probably uh, one of the best or one of the most sort of influential social psychologists you know, over the last 15, 20 years. His work on consciousness and subjective experience is some of the most, like for me, some of the most important work in, in my work. Um, I got to work under him for a year for my dissertation project, which is also looking at the the nature of subjectivity, which is a very, very um, sort of uh, mind blowing and reality altering project in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that moment, I think what I learned through working with Guy and being around Guy and looking at the importance of 
the social and the structural on the, the personal, that was the basis for me to say, all right, I need to put this into all of the elements of my work. And I need to make that something that becomes very much a part of, you know, uh, my day to day practice and my day to day, you know, project. So that was the sort of foundation. And, you know, I've, I've gone on to sort of study masculinities, um, decolonization, all with that mentality in mind. How does the structure impact the, the personal and the individual? And, you know, what, what can we learn through that process of, of introspection? So that mm-hmm. was the journey. It was Guy Swanner's, you know, really kind of really taking me under his, his wing and, and just deconstructing a lot of my ideas about what I thought the discipline was and wasn't and mm-hmm. sort of sending me off when he retired in 2019 to be like, okay, find your own path now. So that was that was the kind of way into, into the social psychology space. Yeah, so it sounds like he was able to help you with understanding, like obviously you work a lot with people fundamentally, we're talking about people, but mm-hmm. actually what's going on in the bigger picture that yeah. influences mm-hmm. where these people are at, maybe with or without their knowing, right? Yeah, Guy was a big and is a big sort of um, advocate of this idea of, is it your perspective or is it something that you've borrowed from mm-hmm. somewhere else mm-hmm. across time and space? And that for me was a like paradigm shift in my perspective, like personal point of view. Okay, yes, yeah, so our opinions, it's our belief systems, but is it an original belief system? Is it an original sort of uh, reflection and articulation? It often can be traced back to very various points in history and culture and the development of, of society and the development of self that I think is often overlooked in, in psychology and, and the wider sort of social scientific disciplines at times. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, for, for him, that was his sort of main, one of his main messages and one of the main messages I try and bring into the work that I do today as well. And is there an example that like comes to mind that you kind of first started working with Guy and really understanding like how that's brought to life. Yeah, so I, I did a, my, my dissertation, my undergrad dissertation, as I said, was on or trying to explore as best as I could at the time what how we come to sort of create subjective experience. Um, so it was it was a qualitative piece of, of research. I, was, I put participants in a in a sort of thought experiment where they were looking at uh, hypothetically uh, sort of neuroscientist who was an expert in color but couldn't see vision mm-hmm. personally. Um, and the question was, are, are they an expert in you know, color, even though they can't see it? If so, why? And just kind of seeing the perspectives and mm-hmm. development off of that. Um, and what, we, what I've sort of looked at from there was that when people are in positions of, of ambiguity, where they don't know much about a topic or, or area, and they can't concretely say this is what it is, what it isn't, they've drawn the culture or the cultural space quite quickly mm-hmm. so some of the answers were like well of course because he's a he's a he understands the principles of science he understands the principles of 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 how neuroscience works and i say he because it's interesting to also know that i presented this neuroscientist uh there was no indication of, of what this neuroscientist you know was where they were mm-hmm. from there was no information but it was inferred scientist man and all of these ideas and I ended up calling it the sort of phenomenological syringes that kind of are injected into people's belief systems and mm-hmm. ideas that then become the basis of opinion, but that opinion often changes and can change depending on context. So that became the basis of a lot of, you know, uh, the the stuff around race, the stuff around decolonization, but particularly masculinities too. 
uh, and how masculinity's come to kind of be experienced and projected it's, we may not often know for ourselves there's a lot of ambiguity around mm-hmm. our own masculinities and then what do we inject from society and culture into that to present in a way that is passing as, as masculine how do we do that so that was the basis of a lot of the work and i guess there's an element of that of what are we doing in awareness and what are we doing that is perhaps out of awareness or on the edge of awareness for us yeah. as well so at the waitlist we see mental health still as a bit of a taboo topic certainly in the uk and so i ask every guest mm-hmm. how are you mad mm-hmm. lewis how are you mad we could do a whole episode uh, on that. <laughs> We've on got that. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, do you know what? I think it's a great question. Um, I think for me and my closest circle would agree with this. I can almost see them nodding in agreement is that, you know, my, my madness is my love for my work and my passion for my work, which often can lead, you know, to, to burnout, can lead to exhaustion. Um, but I think because I love my work and, and what I do, the theoretical aspect, the practical aspect, which I'm sure we'll get into, uh, I'm always looking for the next sort of area of improvement. Where can this be take, taken? Where can it be sort of modified, refined, redefined? And I'm in that, that headspace and that process quite a lot, um, naturally, because it's where I am, you know, for most of my working day. Um, and most of my, you know, lived experience too, because we have a saying in our work, um, you know, we don't have a nine to five. We often carry a lot of our stuff home with us. We've got to sort of, de, sort of uh, deconstruct those ideas, process those ideas. So I think my madness is my love and my passion for the work, which at times can be seen as, you know, overworking, obsessive, I would say. Um, and although it's from a position of passion and, and, and real sort of in deep engagement, I would say that that's where I, where I sort of, frame my my madness so to speak when mm. i'm in the headspace of work whether it's the tedx or whether it's the other projects that i work on i really really get involved and i really get you know fine details uh and picking and repicking so i would say right now that's how i would frame my madness mm, yeah that's really insightful i think um you know across so many helping industries whether it's medical or you know what you guys are doing yeah. um the burnout and the fatigue because it comes from a place of passion is so, so prevalent. Um, Do you mind me asking how like the burnout kind of shows up for you? Of course. Yeah. The burnout can show up in numerous different ways. Um, I think the last burnout episodes that I experienced was it very much did creep up on me like unexpected. Usually have a sort of awareness of, okay, I need to take some time. Um, but I'd had a really busy October with Black History Month engagement work, um, going around into, into into different schools, delivering assemblies, workshops, um, content alongside the one-to-one work, alongside the teaching. And I was really, you know, enjoying it. I loved the, the process of, okay, I'm doing this, da, da, da. And, you know, I was really engaged. And I got to the end of October. I was just like, it was like a, it was an exhaustion, but it was also a, a sense of like, I know I'm burned out when I start to feel a bit more anxious and a bit mm. more sort of overthinking about work and overthinking, did I say what they do, how do they do that? Um, so that it crept up on me in a sense where, you know, my team were like, you're taking, you know, th- these couple of days off, like 
rest and recover we're pulling you from certain sessions we can see that you'll get into that point which is really really useful and really mm. really helpful um but for me it shows up in sort of an, an anxiety and an overthinking um and you know uh, an overanalyzing which is not conducive to the work it's more sort of about myself um, mm -hmm. so that's how i know i'm at that burnout stage i remember when i experienced burnout probably about your age actually mm -hmm. I, lewis and i met before this and i forget that you're so yeah you're <laughs> like 25 i feel very old um but uh yeah i was a similar age and i um couldn't identify it coming i couldn't see it coming and now i've got much better over the last like dare i say like 10 years um at noticing it earlier and like you know we were talking about self-awareness earlier but becoming aware of like what are those signs like why am i feeling a bit weird about this situation why am i overthinking what i said in that meeting or whatever and when that's happening i kind of see it now as like my spidey senses being like okay what yeah. can you do to to pause yeah. um but it's practice right 100 percent 100%. Yeah. It's constant practice as well. Yeah. But yeah no, for sure. It's great. All a work in progress. Mm -hmm. um, so, one of the many organizations you support mm -hmm. um, in your work is Project Zazi in mm -hmm. Bristol. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about what that project does and, and your involvement with it? Yeah, sure. So, um, Project Zazi is a part of, of the Record Bristol, which is a is an umbrella organization, it's a, it's a wide organization. A lot of our work is based around sort of youth. Social Action, uh, we're, you know, a, a charity organization that really provides social, political and, and therapeutic work to young people across a range of lived experiences. Um, project Zazi as a project is faced and uh, facing, shall I say, almost specifically um, with, with young people from black and Asian backgrounds. If we look at the demographics that, that we work with and, and who we see and who we uh, work alongside. So our work is around identity history providing context for for mental health experiences but also you know identity within the sort of structural space that young mm -hmm. people find themselves in so our age range is 11 to 25 in terms of the sort of you know age of, of young people that we work with um and yeah we provide a range of different you know interventions so to speak so we have trained therapists that deliver sort of CBT or psychodynamic based um, interventions for young people who need the support. You have professionals like myself who do group based um, you know, work around sort of masculinities, femininity, um, activism, social action. Um, we have online resources that kind of sit between the sort of group work and individual work that provides further context for young people in their own spaces, in their own homes, because we know that, you know, ultimately, in our communities, uh, you know, young people, there's just a lot of taboo around sort of mental health, mm -hmm. talking about mental health, in, engaging in mental health conversation. So we have our online resources, the Black Bristol Project, Project Childhood as a sort of thing that sits in between the sort of group and in-person therapeutic uh, work and, and modalities that we use. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think what makes the team so unique in the space of Bristol, but also, I suppose, nationwide as well, is that as a team, we are professionals that mirror exactly the young people that we work with. So all of us as team members are either from black or Asian backgrounds. We're, we've lived in Bristol, you know, for most of our lives. We understand the intricacies of the communities that we're a part of because we're a part of them ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're known in the communities as people as well as professionals. So we have this sort of holistic um, uh, approach to our work that is, you know, we're people before we're professionals. And that's why a lot of our young people connect with us um and stay with us and recognize us um you know as people before they say oh yeah 
this person does mental health work as well, but they they know us personally, mm. um, you know, as people, not in the sense of they they know like about us and and kind of you know our, our life stories, but they know the personality mm. before they know mm. the professional, which I think is important. I think young people as well are so intuitive for that. Like yep. they can spot bullshit from a mile off, hundred percent, and like inauthenticity for sure. Yeah. How do you find like, you know, age 11 to 25 is a pretty broad range, yeah. obviously mm. without sharing specific client work, like at broad level, what are, what are these young people coming with, in with mm. and does that differ between that age range? So, yeah, I mean, so supposed to contextualize my work, uh, my age range is mostly um, 15 to 21. Mm-hmm. is where I will work. I, I've recently sort of expanded that to more sort of 13 and 12 as mm-hmm. well. Um, and I suppose all of the young people that I work with, they come with a, their context may be different, but the structural space that they're entering and being informed by is the same. So I often get calls or brought into schools for one-to-one work with young people that are disruptive, quote unquote, or aggressive or not mm-hmm. engaging. People that the school think, for example, are lost causes in 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 and about their own way. You know, they think we just don't know what to do with this young person. Mm. Um, and when I sit down with these young people, what I what I see and what I recognise is, you're not a lost cause. You're not disruptive. You're not aggressive. You just haven't had someone who mirrors your experience that is able to hold mm-hmm. that space for you. And when you do that, you know, you, you get to a much deeper level of what's going on, how you can help them and fix and, and nourish that. But I suppose every young person that I work with comes into the space with some form of structural residue somewhere, whether it's, you know, institutional racism from sort of police or this institutional racism within the school space or in the sort of wider community of Bristol um, and identity issues that come about as a result of that. So not tapping into their cultural magnificence, not really engaging in their sort of culture, hiding elements of themselves away. These are things that I see very, very frequently. Mm. And ultimately, you know, disengagement with establishment and, 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 you know, power dynamics, which is, you know, something that can be quite difficult at first to, what well, was quite difficult for me to navigate going into the space as a sort of green professional that I wasn't new to the space. I quickly realized that these young people see me as a person in a position of power. So how do I neutralize that perception quickly so that we can kind of get to what needs to be spoken about before you're trying to suss me out and see if I'm actually here for authentic reasons or for doing another job of, of the system. Sure. So that they've seen before and, you know. The mistrust and the, and the um, you know, the, the ultimate sort of understandable, um, you know, sort of. Uh, anxiety in and around it. So that's what I see mostly, um, generally speaking. And yes, it goes across the age ranges and the way in which you deal with that is the same. It's presenting truthfully. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, for me, my young people see and it contact an honest version of myself because ultimately I want an honest version of them. So mm-hmm. if, you know, if a teacher is being very sort of unfair, I'm letting them know that and I'm letting them know how I feel about that and, and you know, validating those emotions in those spaces because often it isn't validated in those spaces. So, yeah, I think the way you deal with it is, is truthfulness and, and being honest and, and open. As you say, young people can smell, you know, bullshit a, a mile away and they can, they can, they can smell authenticity and, and truthfulness. And I think that's how I personally like to deal with it. 
how do you introduce these types of themes to some of these young people in a way that they get quite quickly? Examples from lived experience and examples in the, the language and, and sort of vernacular that is familiar to young people. So, you know, when we're doing masculinity spaces, I'm not explaining patriarchy as a structural narrative that sort of, you know, prioritizes the presence of mostly straight men across time and space, you know, from a position of power, marginalization, oppression. I'll say patriarchy is the belief that you think that you have some element of, you know, superiority to your female classmates or classmates that aren't masculine or present as masculine. Uh, it will be presented in examples, um, in language, in, in terminology. So, so I'm not patriarchal. Or I, I, don't, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm misogynistic. Da, da, da. But we'll, we'll bring examples. What did you call that that girl in, in your class? You called her a ting, right? Yeah. What What does a ting mean? A mm-hmm. uh, thing. What What are we getting at when we're talking about things? What, what What's a thing? Something that it's like kind of pick up and like put down. It's, it's not. It doesn't have a like a, a substance or personality or anything like that. Right. So we see what we're talking about. You're not patriarchal, misogynistic, but you've just described one of your classmates as a ting. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a problem with that, right? And, and embedding it into the language and into the practice, I think a lot of the conceptual and theoretical stuff is about getting into the lived experience of the young people and giving them examples from their lived experience. Mm. You know, you can't just teach them, and it go, that goes for university as well, like university level two. You can't go in and just teach a a concept from just a theoretical perspective because mm. the livedness and the and the lived live examples often get overlooked because you intellectualize it. You say, I know what patriarchy is because I learned about it at university, but you haven't changed the behaviors and the ideas and the language that comes with it. Yeah. So, you know, I think intellectualization is something that a lot of people, not just with misogyny, patriarchy, but with race, they kind of get into the, yeah, I've read the books and I've done this and I know that, but actually providing lived examples and thinking, oh, wow, right, yeah, I do do that. And I've just been called out on it respectfully and compassionately, mm. but... Like, yeah, it is here and it does exist. And that's how you deal with it. From from my perspective, I tried to do it sort of here is what we talk about with misogyny, patriarchy when I was very, very, again, green in the space. And it was kind of going over glazed eyes. They weren't, they were, they were nodding, but they were just like, I don't get it. Like, mm-hmm. really don't understand it. But then putting it into real life examples and real life themes, you get so much more push and pull and, and dynamics and conversations that really explore and explain those concepts in the, with the liveness of the young person at yeah. the forefront. So, yeah. It sounds like what you're able to do through building trust and building a relationship on a, you mentioned power earlier, but on an even level as much as you can do within that um, within that dynamic, it sounds like putting a magnifying glass on it in those micro situations, like in class, the language that we're using and stuff like that. And I would imagine that that gives young people an opportunity to really own it yeah it does and i think another factor of the space is i don't enter spaces particularly group work with a right in the sort of moral high ground i'll bring elements of myself in and say listen like you know when i was your age i was doing the same thing like you know took me to age 18 to really understand and like i think that's also an important thing because again young people recognize okay he's telling me about this and that but they'll give me examples in the space of teachers saying that's not okay, but then doing the same thing. I'm like, yeah, you're perceptive to it. You understand it. You watch and you observe. So I think modeling that and being 
an open sort of uh, resource from experience too and saying look you know i've been there i understand it and i'm still making mistakes by the way like you know i'm not coming up as a perfect embodiment of the concept like i'd say to my young people pull me if i'm doing something wrong like if, if i'm saying something that isn't right or you don't necessarily think is you know the right framing because young people are bodies of knowledge as well and mm. you've got a kind of you know it's part of, sort of dissolving that power dynamic in that space as well as being an open readable uh accessible like you know person and, and energy so it sounds like within these projects there's one-to-one -one work mm -hmm. there's group work mm -hmm. there's resources mm -hmm. beyond that yeah what other opportunities do young people right now have to look for for support yeah i mean i suppose within bristol in my space you know project Zazi being one um but a lot of our community facing projects that aren't necessarily mental health in, inclined that, or mental health uh, presenting in terms of, yeah, come in to talk about mental health, like, you know, our studio spaces, for example, um, for music and music creation, um, you know, community centers for just young people going into enjoy and, and, and enjoy each other's space and company. There's an element of mental health work within those spaces now as well, because as a community, there's still a lot of sort of, tabooness around mental health and expressing and talking about mental health but we are embedding those principles into all aspects of, of our of our community spaces so they may not get an opportunity to work like specifically with project zazi but there are other organizations that they can potentially benefit from uh, or they can potentially get something from um and you know i think with zazi we're a team of, of less than 10 so we're unable to meet the needs of of all of the young people in our in our city space but you know with things like black bristol and with things like you know the childhood project we're just providing accessible informative resources around history mental health the experiences of young people across time and space so that there is something to kind of validate those emotions in those spaces that they've experienced and, and they're a part of whilst they're waiting for opportunities to work with ourselves or in sort of CAMS settings or in, mm -hmm. in sort of any other sort of, um, uh, you know, professional clinical quote unquote uh, spaces. So that's kind of the opportunities that, that kind of come up from our work. And if, if people listening wanted to find out about Black Bristol and Project Childhood, could mm -hmm. they go online? Like, Yeah, so it's, it's blackbristol.com. Um, so Black Bristol is, a, is an interactive historical timeline. It goes through some of Bristol's most important, but often unacknowledged um, black and brown history um was born out of essentially young people coming to us and saying we're learning about all of this in history but there's nothing never anything about us and there's never anything about like our experience and if it is it's either slavery or it's a very very sort of small part of you know um the sort of civil rights movement and it's the same old stuff and I, we know there's more so we kind of localized it to bristol Bristol as a city has a very rich history when it comes to activism, social action, and a lot of the social uh, sort of action uh, leads, activists, change makers are, are from, from our black and brown communities, and they aren't centered enough in the wider Bristolian discourse for the change that, that happens and is happening and continues to happen in our space. They're the originators, the pioneers, but they often get kind of... Uh, distorted and, and unacknowledged in a lot of our sort of educational spaces. So that's the Black Bristol project. And as an extension of that, we recently did a body of research called Childhood, which was really an examination cross-generationally 
of you know our community's experience of childhood like what was the elders experience of school in the community how is that different to our young people now and how is it different to you know our parents generation is there any difference if there is a difference is it really a difference or is it sort of the same themes that are re-emerging and, and, and coming up so that is a project positioning the voices of our young people now but also our elders and the voices of their inner children from many different sort of points in history kind of showing mm, stuff is changing but there's still a core element of things that are the same for our young people that were the same for our elders and we need to do something about that and we need to challenge school spaces community spaces to, to do better mm. so you can check that out at blackbristol.com we talk a lot on the wait list about the power of community mm-hmm. and it sounds like in many of the projects that you're working across whilst mental health is an important kind of narrative that underpins a lot of what you're doing for some of these young people it's not necessarily like you know the headline on the poster like come and talk about mental health how do you find like music and other community-based projects really support mental well-being for young people yeah so i think what we're doing in bristol at the moment very recently well more so more recently is we're collaborating as community projects and initiatives. So I've recently started engaging with a, a colleague of mine in, in a community space, in a music studio, and also in a sort of youth space. And some of my practice at the moment is just sitting in young people's studio sessions, watching their process, but examining the lyrics and hmm. looking at, okay, you're communicating this. Mm, interesting that's part of your lived experience and then having a conversation like where are you getting that from oh from this and yeah da, da, da. and just meeting young people again in their space in their in their reality not forcing information but just observing and just being involved in that process and contributing where necessary and i think that's what we're doing as a wider community project now there's so many more collaborative initiatives that are being you know funded which is obviously incredibly important as a side note you know we can't do these community collaborations if there's no funding so funding these projects funding these pathways and and giving young people sort of uh you know seeing lots of different mental health professionals and community engagement workers youth workers studio engineers all in the same space and normalizing the presence of everyone but as people not as professionals um so that's kind of what's going on in bristol at the moment if that answers the the question yeah definitely i mean i was really struck by then what you were saying around really listening mm. to some of the lyrics and i would imagine you mm. know beyond the lyrics themselves like what's being communicated i think you said and i feel like that's such a skill mm. to really hear what's being said yeah. beyond the surface yeah. like what are what are your tips for you know even just a one-to-one conversation maybe between mom and mm. daughter or whatever like how can we listen better as people yeah i mean there's an element there's, there's firstly an element of intuition that's really important in any listening um space and, and context that you find yourself in so often what people say and what people maybe concealing or or, or feeling a often very different things and your intuition will will tell you that you'll have a feeling like mm, kind of skipped over that quite quickly or you didn't seem to want to engage about that and you're having that that discourse with yourself that conversation of oh 
they, they skipped over that a little bit quicker or you know it's about observing the words but also the the body language and the person behind the words as well so i think that's something that's really important for for listening and going beneath the the surface and i think listening also is less about or is about listening to the words in the space it's also about observation across a longer period of time so one of our practices is as long as it's not like a very high risk situation if a young person doesn't want to engage in that conversation right now we say cool no worries no problem but then we'll be observing them in that school space over a longer period of time to identify themes ah this they bunk this lesson today or they keep bunking this lesson or they don't like this teacher because they keep getting sent out is that influence in their space you can do that at home with you know they're going up to their room you know a bit more than usual they seem a bit more isolated kind of isolating themselves they seem to be eating their dinner quickly and kind of getting back up to a space they don't seem to want to talk about a lot of different things um they seem to be sort of uh you know kind of uh, getting up later and later and not wanting to come downstairs these could be just teenage things or young people things but it could also just be something that you keep a mental note of and you keep checking in on and you keep engaging with and that normalizes in that space i'm listening through my observations as much as i'm listening to your words we can have that conversation when you're ready but i'm also listening to you whilst you're in my space and whilst i'm kind of you know uh whilst you're in in this sort of area i'm watching and i'm looking at what you're not saying as much as what you are saying mm-hmm. you're letting that be normalized in the space that's something that i think is a really good listening practice um for anybody um whether that's parents romantic relationships platonic friendships mm. you know it's the same sort of sort of ethos mm. and i think you're like we've got to know each other a bit over the last year like your energy for me is so natural and i feel like you're somebody that people can really open up to because there's no judgment there. Mm. And I guess in these kind of situations in our everyday lives, like it sounds like what you're saying, the first part is let's just notice. But Mm. I'm wondering if the second part is noticing without judgment. Like we're not trying to fix this. Sometimes it's knowing that someone's being seen. Yeah. 100%. I think you you touched upon a sort of intent, like a sort of uh, umbrella, uh, practice for me i think when it comes to listening as people we often want to and i've learned this through working with young people more than anything else is that we want to interject with our experience i think you should be doing this though i know what you're saying but i think we should be doing this and i think you should be doing that i think one of the most yeah important things is letting the space be kind of guided by what a person is saying and doing and like you say noticing but not judging and sort of holding that space compassionately and 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 understanding that you know this is your space and I'm, I'm here to support and nourish regardless and i think unconditional acceptance is something that's very big as a team but also as a as a, as a practicing practitioner you can't get young people to change their belief systems and their ideas without meeting and validating them as they are and i think if you see them and value them as they are and say you are enough as you are with these belief systems with these ideas these are your you know perspectives and ideas but they're not fixed and not they're not rooted we can change that if you know if you feel the need to and giving them that that freedom and flexibility to feel seen and heard then as a result of that you get more open interactions and more sort of openness and and willingness to experiment and change and experiment and sort of engage i think 
a lot of the sort of disengagement of young people is actually a fear of validation uh, and not being validated and seen. So when you give them that opportunity and that space to feel that way and let them know that that's a constant, then you do get into a much deeper um, sort of uh, energetic relationship where they will disclose and share their deepest ideas and thoughts and belief systems um, much quicker because they recognize and see it as truthful. I want to talk a little bit about Flourish. So mm. you're a co-creator of Flourish. Can you explain to me mm. what that initiative is and, and how you're involved? Yeah, so Flourish is uh, it's, it's more my academic um, higher education, my, more, my higher education cap, should I say. Um, so it was, again, a project that was birthed out of observation. Um, my university experience was positive, as I mentioned, you know, sort of start of the the podcast but it did come with huge moments of recalibration and and reflection um my university career didn't start off on the best foot uh, as i often share with my students you know i graduated with a first but when i started i was like i don't even know if i could do this this is this is this crazily hard whatever um and i was taken under you know a, a mentor and a lecturer's wing his name was bill hill still my business partner in, in terms of flourish related stuff um and he recognized in me something i didn't see at the time he, he recognized one the arrogance and ignorance to think that a level would carry over to to university and that everything would be exactly the same as it was but he also had that ability to be like you can do this you can do it but you've got to put a lot of work in like it's not great right now but you can be great through this process and it's how you do it so the flourish module i suppose is a reflection of that sort of connection with Bill and what Bill taught me and how Bill kind of um, sort of mentored me directly and indirectly over the university space and me recognizing, you know, if I didn't have a conversation or, or mentoring like this, where would I be in university, in sort of the university career? I probably would have still done all right, but I wouldn't have done as well as I ended up doing. And I wanted that to be a accessible bit of information and knowledge for a lot of the you know, students coming through. Um, so. That's the flourish ethos, and you know we we really do um, prioritize positive psychology, which is kind of strength based, um, asset based, you know, personal development, um, as well as you know, personal development theory uh, in relation to sort of coaching techniques and and practices that give young people because they are young people, even though sometimes they think they're big, big grown adults in in the higher education space. You know, they're still still young people. Um, giving them an opportunity to take ownership not just of their academics but of their own personal development and well-being without getting to a point hopefully if we do our job right where the need to go to clinical spaces with such an amount of burnout stress and trauma you know i think mental health is universal work for everybody and i think therapy is universal for everybody but looking after your mental health and your well-being for yourself and having those principles and those values embedded in your sort of day-to-day -day life it it limits the 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 chance or restricts the chance shall i say of of having to get to a point where you are desperately in need of of you know sort of very quick support and very quick um assistance where your mental health and burnout stress and well-being is concerned so that's what we kind of do with the flourish module and we've been running professionally in the uni space now for two years um across the social sciences in the University of the West of England, mostly sociology and psychology. I think it's so important because we, 
you know, this is called the waitlist for a reason. Like we know a lot of people who by the time they reach the therapy room, you know, they've been carrying a load that probably feels very heavy for a long time. I think what's great about you doing that, Lewis, as well, is like you've got that student experience, like in fairly recent Mm -hmm. memory. Mm -hmm. And then now you're coming at this with an academic mindset. You know, you lecture at the university as well, and you've co-founded this Mm -hmm. project, which is amazing. So well done on doing that. Thank you. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Do you think it's something that... um, other universities or other higher education places listening to this could adopt in some way, whether it was Flourish or something of their own doing? I mean, it is something that when we were creating Flourish and putting it together and practice and putting it in practice, because we trialed it, we even trialed it whilst I was a student. Obviously, I was not paid as an academic, I was paid as a sort of student facilitator, but we were trialing a very early ideas in my second and third year of university. Um, And it really became something that we wanted to create because it, it exists quite it's quite a normalized um like ethos in sort of american higher education spaces like you will learn about grit resilience mindset self-regulation self-awareness these are things that are embedded in you know university level uh, courses in the states and it's very sort of popularized there i say over there but useful to a lot of the students in, in those spaces we haven't really adopted it as much over in sort of uk uh, yet um so flourish is you know one of the first in the in the sort of higher education space to do what we do in the capacity that we do it but you know i think it's also uh an acknowledgement that yeah you know well-being isn't just the the negative and waiting for the negative to happen it's the cultivation of, of the positive and the strength-based work whilst you're kind of working day to day throughout your practices and your long-term goals and objectives so yeah i think it is something that needs to be more uh present and more you know uh on a lot of higher education institutions radars because we know you know in the higher education space the well-being levels in the waiting lists for student counseling uh, services are an all-time high um you know student mental health support is an all-time high student burnout and stress at an all-time high so you know i think it makes sense to invest in long term you know not just life you know uh, long practices in terms of yeah you know it's going to help you through uni and help you through all areas of your life but life wide as well what we teach with flourish isn't just academics it's life development and life you know uh, responsive so i think yeah something that needs to be present and something that needs to be invested in more and i do foresee you know over the next 5 10 years that becoming more and more invested in mm. in the higher education spaces. I really hope so. I really hope so. I think, you know, for I'm going to say university age here. And what I mean by that is many, but not all people joining university at 18, 19, whatever, uh, leaving 21, 22. Uh, I appreciate that's not everyone's experience. But also that age range, whether you're going to university or not, right? There's still a huge transition from moving into adulthood you said earlier like a lot of a lot of the people you meet at at UE are like yeah no I'm an adult now and and that might feel real at the time but perhaps with a bit of a zoomed out perspective we see it differently like it's such an important time in your life to transition and um, having an underpin of support feels essential Mm -hmm. with what's going on around the world right now. You mentioned um, a couple of mentors that you've had Mm -hmm. um, over the last few years. Mm -hmm. 
I'm wondering if you can share a little bit around how you um, found those mentors or indeed how they found you yeah. and any tips that you might be able to share for somebody looking for something like that type of relationship. Sure. I, of, I often get on, on, on Bill's back about how our sort of working relationship uh, ended up happening. Um, it, it was actually him embarrassing me a little bit in a, in a lecture um, uh, because like I said, I was quite an, I don't want to say arrogance. I was, there was a element of naivety. I think that's a better way of framing it. You know, I did okay at college, but my strengths were sociology. You know, uh, that was my, that was the thing that I thought I was quite good at. Um, and Bill was a sociology lecturer for, for context. Um, and I distinctly remember, I know the lecture hall, I know, you know, what was happening and, and stuff. Uh, I think he asked the question. So Bill is very much like, he is the same ethos that I, you know, apply. He's very honest, open. He's himself. There is no, there is no playing uh, a role. It's just, I'm me. This is it. Uh, and, you know, he started off talking about how many people have done A-level sociology in this first lecture of the year. A few people put their hands up. I say like 50, 60% put their hands up. Okay, okay, keep your hands up if you've got a B in sociology. Uh, people, the hands are going down a little bit more. My hand stays up quite firmly because I know I got an A, right? So I feel like I'm I'm in the top echelon here. So cool. Put your hands up if you've got an A, uh, uh, sort of sociology uh, A level. It's like one or two hands remain. One of them being myself. There was more people in the room, but Bill decides to look at me directly because I was probably close to the front. He says, "Well, I just want to let you know that that doesn't mean shit here." Um, in fact, it's probably a disadvantage for you to think that that's going to serve you well in this space. <laughs> and I remember being like, cool. But then it was the, it was the follow-up point when he was looking at me that really sort of ignited a, a desire to really prove this man wrong with all fibers of my being. <laughs> he, said, he said to me, we'll see how good you are in a few years, won't we? And then just went on, flip, flip onto the next point, just left it there. And I was just sat in my seat and I just thought, I feel like that was a personal, <laughs> he doesn't know me, but I felt like that was personal. Like, we'll see how good you are in a few years. And I spoke about this with him like maybe two years ago. He was like, honestly, he said I was just kind of, you know, taking the piss a bit. He said, but what I recognized from you in the other workshops was that there was an intensity in the workshop space that you were going beyond, beyond, beyond. And he says, and that makes sense. He said, a lot of people walk through and a lot of people rely on what they've done before and kind of cruise through. He said, but, you know, I'm glad that you found that offensive and wanted to prove yourself because, you know, look, look where, where it's got you at this point. But to answer the question, I worked with Bill for that reason. There was no BS. Like mm -hmm. there was no yes, you know, oh, you can do it. It was a sort of element of, we'll see how good you are. And I, for me, that ignited something in myself at that point in my life where I felt like I can learn from this person mm -hmm. because they're seeing something in me. I obviously reflect on this now. I didn't think it's at the time, but I, I think of it as he knew what my biggest obstacle and barrier was, which is my own naivety. And he was able to identify that clearly and give me something to think and reflect on. And I think that's something that I always look for in mentors now is what can you identify in me? Can you identify something in me that I don't necessarily see yet, but can you nurture and support that moving forward um, into the future as well? Same with Guy. 
you know, principles of coming in thinking that I understood a lot about so um, psychology at, at level three. And the first question he asked me, but how do you know that we exist as people? How do you know, <laughs> how do you know existence exists? And that took me to a point where I was like, well, because I'm, because I, I'm thinking, so is that your thoughts or is that the thought of society and culture? And there was an answer for everything. And I just felt like, oh, I don't know. I actually don't know. He said, right. He said, that is what you should be comfortable in, in saying, I don't know. We don't mm -hmm. know. And the purpose is to find out, you know, try to find out, but ultimately we probably will never know. And having those people and those perspectives that fundamentally change something and will walk you through and, and, and navigate you through those spaces, that's what I look for in a mentor. Something that I don't necessarily have with my own repertoire but there's an element of realness and truth that was able to support me and, and walk me through that process. Same with G as well, Mr. G. Um, so for context, one of the um, people that brought me into the TEDx um, talk, it was his segment of the show and he's been a mentor of mine for two years now, which is amazing. Um, coming up to two and a half. G was the same, but in a more um, sort of, he's like, you need to do spoken words. He said, um, that, that sounds just like G actually, you know, you need to do Says how he is. Yeah, how yeah, it is. yeah, yeah. So you need to do spoken word. He said, you're, 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 you're skirting around it. Um, he said, but you, you can speak, you're comfortable. Like, why not? But why not do it? And just sort of pushing that element of myself into a realm, which kind of became you know, the telex, seeing things in me that I didn't necessarily see in myself and pushing me in those directions. I think that's what I look for in mentors. Yeah, that's such great advice. Like what I'm hearing is like finding people that can be um, challenging. Yes. And being open with them about what you don't know. But I think these people can see it early. So like, gee, I've known for, well, probably about six years now through TEDx. And that's how you and I now know each other, Lewis. Um, and I remember this was a good few years ago. So you did your TEDx this 2022, mm -hmm. a couple of years before that, at least. G was like, yeah, this guy Lewis in Bristol, you need to have a, you need to have a chat with him. And it sounds like that was fairly early doors in your relationship with him. Yeah. Um, but I think there are people walking this planet that want to help and are so ready to say how it is because that's where the growth is. And I think it's something I apply when I'm when I'm mentoring, you know, young people, um, and bringing them into the space. Like, it's about seeing something in them early that they don't see in themselves, and really believing in that. I had a message from a young person, you know, a couple of months ago. He's fourteen, in started in music, and this kid is phenomenal. He hasn't put any music out yet because he doesn't have an alias, so I can't tell you to go and check his music out at this point, right? But he is amazing, um, loves his craft, very, very, very good. And just has a real passion and love and obsession, if you will, going back to the madness question with music. Um, and he was showing me old, older stuff when I first started working with him. And I was like, this is amazing for your age, for 13, 12, you're doing mm. amazing, amazing stuff. And just keep asking when you put music out, when you put music out. Um, and I had a message from the other day saying, you know, just sent me some new music. I haven't heard from him in a few months. He was like, by the way, like, thank you for believing in my music when no one else did. And I think that was a reflection from him. That is something I look to push as a mentor. My ethos is same for what Bill did and same for what Guy and G is seeing things in people 
that they don't see in themselves. And you can only do that if that's happened to you and if you've experienced that, you know, in the space. So yeah, I think that's that's what, what it's about with mental health. So that brings us to our final question, which is based on what you've learned over the years as a social psychologist and working across all of these projects and in academia as well, what's the one thing that you've kind of learned about mental health now um, that you didn't know before and you, and you want to share with others? I think it goes back to the the point I made about Guy, I think as, as professionals, but as people, we have to be comfortable with saying, I don't, I don't know. Mm. I'm not quite sure. Guy was the first person that I saw like do that frequently. And I was just like, the way it was so normalized and so casual, I'd ask a question. He's like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but it would be interesting to find out. Um, and having that as a mentality, because I think we can often get lost when it comes to mental health. We can get lost in the specifics, what it is, what it isn't, mm -hmm. what this means, theory, concepts, X, Y, Z. But again, we're intellectualizing something that's lived and is very much a, a sort of livedness. So I think for me, it's about being comfortable with I don't know and actually utilizing I don't know as, as, as a, a strength as opposed to a, a, a perceived flaw. I think the best mental health professionals and the best, you know, people that I know that have the clearest idea of their mental health and what that means to them and how, how it kind of shows up for them is they ask the I don't know question and they use it as a form of exploration. Mm. So I think being comfortable with I don't know and not thinking of, oh my gosh, I need to know, but let me explore that some more. Let me find out a little bit more. I think that's something that has led into all aspects and areas of my work and all practices and, and ideas that I'm working on, you know, to this day, project wise. So say, I don't know, uh, as a, as a, as a sort of base response to a lot of things. And it puts a lot of people, oh, wasn't expecting that. Mm. But then it also normalizes that interaction of maybe I don't know either. Let's yeah. explore this together. So that's, that's kind of what I would say about that. Yeah, I love that. It opens up the exploration together and like what a leveler, I don't mm. know, is, mm. right? Like if yeah. there was ever any kind of, we we're talking about power a little bit at mm. the beginning, like if there was any disparity and like, I don't know, maybe you're someone's boss or maybe like you're a teacher, somebody listening, like I don't know is such a leveler to like, we're both in this together and that feels so important. 100% and Guy is a master at that. So big respect to Guy for, for allowing me to see that and take that into my, my space. So yeah. Yeah. Well, before we close, I want to talk about Mendable, mm. which is your podcast, mm. which um, at time of recording isn't released yet, but no. hopefully yes. will be out there. Can you share a little bit about what that podcast is? Yeah. So off of the back of the TEDx talk that I did on the, the crisis of, of masculinity, um, it's been a very rich conversation starter in my community and also just in different spaces and, and professional sort of, um, you know, intellectual spaces too. So, you know, um, having conversations with people in the space uh, around masculinity and masculinities, shall I say, I think the Mendable podcast, I've been in and out of podcasting for, for a couple of years. Um, I had a podcast that I started last year and I, I kind of paused it to kind of, you know, uh, focus on the TEDx and really give it the energy and time that it deserved. But, you know, last year it was one of the most shared educational podcasts on Spotify. Um, and so for me, how can I bring a project in that's truthful, 
and reflective of a lot of the work that I'm doing now, but also provides a bigger service to the communities that I care about locally, but also globally as well. I think what we're trying to do with Mendable is it's an ethos as much as a name. So every episode that I put out and intend to put out, it's not from a position of universal truth around masculinity or masculinities. It's open to interpretation, critique, ideas, uh, and really defining those concepts across time and space. So it is a podcast on masculinities, but it's a podcast that aims to explore different ideas and perspectives and different framings of things that we often take for granted as truth and flipping it on its head entirely just to see, you know, what happens if we do that and, and what that sort of brings within our own space and in our own awareness of what a masculinity may mean and also for the masculinities around you know you as a person if you're not you know identifying uh, in this sort of masculine or, or if you don't uh, align yourself with masculinity should i say how does that show up for those in your life that you care about and love deeply and want to give them space to reflect and honor themselves so that's the mendable podcast um, and what it aims to do and i'm really really excited to to get that out as a continuation of the work that the TEDx talk started. Yeah, so, yeah, amazing. Well, I can't wait to listen to it. We'll have a link in the show notes and I'll also put a link to your TEDx Brighton talk as well, which is Thank just you. so fantastic. And we're so grateful to have had you there. And I'm personally very grateful mm -hmm. to have you join the waitlist today. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you for having me.